Welcome to today's podcast, Best Practices for Investigating Sexual Harassment Complaints. The Me Too movement has created an unprecedented shift in the way companies are expected to address allegations of sexual misconduct. While the appropriate response will vary depending on the circumstances of a given case, it is important that the company act swiftly and take the allegations seriously. Companies have a legal, ethical, and employee relations obligation to thoroughly investigate charges of sexual harassment of any type. They must be willing and prepared to conduct prompt, objective, and thorough investigations before a complaint comes in. A poorly conducted investigation can harm an organization's bottom line as well as its long-term reputation. In this podcast, Rain Serena Bash sits down with Unidine, partner, white-collar defense and government investigations at Freed Frank. Unit concentrates her practice on white-collar criminal defense, internal investigations, cybersecurity, and related civil litigation. She represents public, multinational corporations, and financial institutions in conducting internal investigations involving allegations of fraud and other misconduct, and routinely advises corporate clients on issues relating to cybersecurity corporate governance, cyber preparedness, and incident response. Prior to joining Freed Frank, Eunice served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, where she investigated, prosecuted, and tried some of the district's most important and high-profile cases across a wide spectrum of practice areas, including money laundering, securities fraud, trade sanctions, and cybercrime. She also served as the Office of Cyber Specialist and as a Computer Hacking and Intellectual Property Coordinator. With that, I'll turn it over to Serena. Serena? Thank you, Greg, and welcome, Yuna, to the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. Every day, we are seeing new allegations of inappropriate workplace conduct, sexual harassment allegations, or allegations of sexual assault uh, in the media against uh, major companies, C-suite executives, uh, business unit managers, and companies that are household names uh, across the country. And here at Rain, we have embarked on everything from creating ethics-based training programs that are aimed at rooting out harassing behavior and cultivating civility in the workplace, and exploring these areas of uh, civility in the workplace and appropriate best practices for anti-harassment, both through webinars and through podcasts, in an effort to try to illuminate what is a positive corporate culture and how should companies be um, aiming to cultivate a positive and uh, speak up culture within their corporation. The more we see, and as days go on, it becomes very clear that these issues are not going to go away and that companies are going to be faced uh, with having to investigate and look into allegations to determine the efficacy of the, of the allegation, whether it's credible, and what, if any, action needs to be taken on behalf of the complainant and against someone who is an alleged wrongdoer. When I had the first opportunity to meet with you, Yuna, we had a chance to talk about a recent memo that you had written for your clients at Freed Frank um, called uh, Received a Sexual Misconduct Complaint, 10 Steps Companies Should Take. Um, and it is a terrific uh, outline of what companies should be doing when they do receive these types of uh, allegations within the company. So my first question to you is, uh, what prompted you to write this uh, memo together with your um, colleague, Joshua Ross? Sure. So 
I had conducted a number of internal investigations around sexual misconduct at different stages of my career. And um, more recently, there has been um, there has been a greater need for these types of investigations, and I've become more heavily involved in this space. And as I did that, I realized that I would invariably be called in, or my team would be invariably called in at a very late stage when the company really was already in crisis mode, when prior complaints were um, handled inappropriately by human resources department, the legal department, or other stakeholders, and that the company had gotten to a point where it needed to call in outside counsel and really perform crisis management services um, as, as well as very thorough internal investigations. And I thought that if my clients could have a memo outlining the general steps that should be that they should be taking in order to respond to complaints of sexual misconduct or harassment, that it would be helpful for them to understand the various pitfalls. And I included in these 10 steps, not simply steps to take, but also things not to do, which I often saw companies doing um, in the course of responding to a complaint. And in your experience, is how do complaints of sexual harassment in the workplace generally um, come in or become known? Is there one particular way? Or are there a lot of different ways? What's there really are a lot of different ways, and I think um, oftentimes it's through a whistleblower hotline or an anonymous hotline. Uh, I've seen anonymous <laughs> anonymous letters to boards of directors. I've seen complaints made informally by witnesses to the uh, the wrongful behavior, and I've seen formal complaints, whether to the legal department or to the HR department or to a supervisor. So there are all manner of ways in which these things might come into a company and a company might be alerted to a potential problem. So when a complaint does come into a company, what are some of the first steps a company should take uh, after receiving a complaint? Well, first of all, you need to understand what the complaint is alleging and get your arms around um, what the alleged wrongful behavior is and uh, who the parties are to the extent you can tell and what the surrounding circumstances are because the more you understand about the surrounding circumstances, the people involved, um, the business unit involved, the, the better positioned you're going to be to understand how to move forward, who else to involve, whether to call outside counsel, et cetera. You really want to do a little bit of initial fact gathering to understand the playing field. And then uh, you need to develop a, a course of action depending on the type of complaint, the nature of the complaint, uh, the person who's the alleged victim, whoever the alleged wrongdoer is, you may need to involve different parties in the decision in the initial decision-making stages. Um, sometimes it can stop at human resources and they can conduct their own investigation. Oftentimes, the investigations that I get involved in involve senior executives or potential criminal conduct or pervasive behavior. And so that's when you're more likely to get general counsels involved, boards of directors involved, and then outside counsel involved as well. And then you need to map out a plan of action um, and how you're going to proceed, what the potential um, deadlines are, and, and any other sort of situational issues that you need to be aware of in order to move forward. And from the outset, when a complaint comes in, who should be the circle of people who are making decisions around 
what is uh, how the fact gathering is going to occur, what should be the course of action, who are the people within the company who are need to know people. Right. So I have a very definitive answer to this question, which is it depends. And it very much differs depending on the circumstances. And in almost every investigation I've had, it's been slightly different. Sometimes it's a special committee of the board of directors who is re- that is retaining outside counsel. And that is my client, that's that special committee. <laughs> Uh, sometimes it is the CEO of a company, and uh, other times it's the legal department. I think what's important to know is, as a general matter, you want to keep the circle of people in the know as limited as possible in order to do your investigation as, as thoroughly as you need to. The greater the circle of people, the more tittering you might have as to the nature of the allegations, the fact of the investigation, the less control you have over uh, who knows what and potential waivers of privilege and general sort of inability to control the confidentiality of the investigation, which could also impair the integrity of the investigation. So I think companies typically have certain escalation policies and Oftentimes, depending on the nature of the allegations and the people involved, it'll be pretty clear the uppermost level that it should uh, this complaint should go to, whether uh, it can stay within HR, whether it needs to be escalated to the C-suite, whether it needs to go to the board. But I think the general rule of thumb is to try and keep the number of people in the know limited so that you can conduct your investigation uh, fairly and impartially. <laughs> And when is a complaint of uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault sufficiently serious that a company should be engaging outside counsel to investigate it? So uh, when you have the uppermost levels of management, whether it's C-suite, senior management, uh, rainmakers at a firm, someone where you can potentially have conflicts of interest if people within the company are investigating, that can be a sufficiently serious uh, type of scenario just based on the um, potential witnesses and actors involved uh, to warrant bringing in outside counsel. And then you have um, a, a greater ability to defend the uh, um, the impartiality and the independence of the investigation. Um, also, another potential variable is what exactly is the behavior? Is it pervasive behavior? Is it potentially criminal behavior? Is it harassment? Is it um, actual physical misconduct? Um, These are all sort of like an array of variables that need to be factored in uh, to understand uh, who needs to get involved. And the overarching principle is that if you bring in independent outside counsel, you are going to have a more defensible investigation. So you have to think about the potential criticisms that might come if the investigation is conducted solely in-house, and if it's conducted by sort of more junior management as opposed to more senior management. You also have to assess um, whether in-house the company has the capabilities to handle a complaint, regardless of where it lies on the spectrum of seriousness, because if you don't have the capabilities to handle it, whether in terms of personnel or training, you probably need to bring in outside experts. And as the, as the investigation, before the investigation is being done and, and as it's unfolding, um, what, if anything, should companies be doing to um, manage uh, the team relationships and the individuals who are involved in the, in the complaint, whether it's the recipient, a bystander complainant, or the alleged wrongdoer? Right. 
Yeah, that that's really tricky. So if you take you take the alleged victim, you take the alleged wrongdoer. I mean, those are two sort of separate constituencies. With regard regard to the alleged wrongdoer, um, you do at some point, um, hopefully after you formulated some sort of plan of action, need to inform that person that there is a complaint and the general nature of the complaint. Um, you also need to inform that person as to the general steps the company is going to take, which presumably would involve an internal investigation, advise that person that he or she shouldn't take steps to investigate on his or her own or to try and figure out what the exact nature of the complaint is or to try and impede the investigation in any way uh, and that retaliation will not be tolerated. With regard to the alleged victim, you similarly need to convey to that individual to the extent you know who that person is, um, how seriously the company takes allegations of sexual harassment or misconduct and, uh, and the general course of action the company intends to take in response, um, and also give assurances that the company will not um, tolerate retaliation. And, uh, uh, and, and open up a channel of communication for that person to feel comfortable um, reporting any concerns he or she may have uh, along the way. With regard to the general sort of team dynamics and the fact that people need to continue to work together, it depends highly on the particular company, the particular business unit or other unit um, that it may be. You do have to rely to a certain extent on people's professionalism. You need to make clear to people that they need to go about their business and do their jobs and act professionally and keep any information they have with regard to the investigation, whether they were interviewed as a witness or otherwise, confidential, and that the company is taking this very seriously and uh, any breaches of confidentiality will be taken very seriously. And otherwise, rely on people's general sense of professionalism, A, to do their jobs, uh, B, to report up if there are any issues in their ability to do their jobs while the investigation is pending. And then you also need to look at some other factors, like with regard to the alleged wrongdoer and the alleged victim. Are they working closely with each other every day? Is it a situation that's tenable where they can continue to do so while the investigation is pending? I've had situations where they actually could, and I've had situations where it was intolerable for them to do so and other accommodations needed to be made. It's all sort of very fact-driven on what specific actions to take. One of the things that you're very clear about is that no punitive action should be taken against the complainant. Can you talk a little bit about what would be considered to be punitive action um, and what is or is not permissible during the course of the investigation in terms of managing the person who's the complainant? Right. So there are no real bright-line rules here. I mean, there are a lot of things that could be taken in certain contexts as punitive action and the same types of actions that um, may not be perceived as such. But what I do often see happening is, whether it's intentional or unintentional, a complaint comes in and there are sort of very subtle or not so subtle steps taken that uh, the, the complainant or the, and or the victim may not be the same, one and the same, perceives as retaliatory. So I, I had one instance where the complainant was subject to a performance evaluation after the complaint come, came in. Um, I've also had situations where the alleged victim was transferred for her own well-being to a different unit um, during the pendency of the investigation, which she perceived as retaliatory. 
and, and rightfully so under those circumstances. Um, administrative leave can be perceived as retaliatory, uh, even if the company thinks uh, is acting in the best interests of that individual. I've also had situations, though, where the individual uh, said, you know what, I think it's a great opportunity for me to work on this project in this other section while this investigation is pending, and I'm happy with that, and, and uh, that I, I would welcome that, that transfer temporary or permanent. And that's where everyone's in agreement that that kind of action is for the benefit of everybody involved. So, again, um, I, I, it's a tricky situation, but you ha any, any steps that the company takes, uh, it needs to be mindful of whether that action can be perceived as retaliatory. Um, and and it, a lot of it depends on the intent of the actor, but also on the way the individual receiving the action perceives it. Let's talk a little bit about um, the person who would be the alleged wrongdoer in, in a case in which there are complaints of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct. When in the process is it, is it appropriate to speak to the alleged wrongdoer? What kind of warnings, if any, are given uh, to that individual? And how should that person be managed in terms of whether they should be left where they are, maintaining the status quo, or placed on leave. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how companies can handle that? Sure. With I mean, both with fairness, integrity, and in, and due process for a person who's only been alleged to have done. Uh, yeah, process. and I think that's really important to understand. I think this envi in this environment, sometimes it's very easy to get swept up in the notion that um, complaints of wrongdoing are, in fact, um, substantiated um, findings of wrongdoing. And I've, I've seen enough uh, in my day and had enough investigations where after the investigation is completed, turned out to be a lot murkier than that. Oftentimes, the factual allegations turn out to be true. Sometimes they turn out to be partially true and partially not. And I've had other situations where very, very detailed um, allegations about misconduct turned out to be completely false. So you have to bear in mind the rights of the alleged wrongdoer as well. But generally speaking, you want to make sure you have a general plan of action in order, uh, in terms of moving forward before you involve really anybody, including the alleged wrongdoer. Obviously, your client, whatever constituency or whoever that person is, needs to be involved in various other decision makers. Um, but you want to keep it as close to the best as you can so that you have a plan of action. And then when you approach the, the alleged wrongdoer, that person does need to be informed generally of the nature of the allegations. He or she doesn't need to have, shouldn't read uh, word for word the complaint that came in to the extent it's written or was otherwise documented, but um, have a general sense of what are the what are the, the types of allegations being made. I caution against um, revealing the person who is making the complaint or the person who is alleged to be the victim. Um, unless for some reason that seems to be absolutely necessary in order to move forward. The alleged wrongdoer should also be told, as I said, that uh, the company takes this very seriously and will endeavor to conduct the investigation as thoroughly and expeditiously as possible, keeping the, the rights and interests of everybody in mind uh, so that everybody can see this to a conclusion and move forward, but also that any interference in the investigation, any attempt at retaliation, any retaliation, whether subtle or not subtle, will not be tolerated whatsoever. 
oftentimes in these investigations, there are also document holds put in place, and there need to be warnings given to all witnesses uh, not to destroy any emails or records, physical or electronic documents um, during the pendency of the investigation. And usually there's a document hold that goes along with that. In terms of putting someone on leave, uh, that is a very fact-driven assessment. Um, I would say for most, the better part of my investigations, as a, as a general matter, more often than not, there's been a decision not to put, that, put uh, the alleged wrongdoer on leave. And you want to, the times when you want to think about doing that is when the company simply can't operate um, if, that, if that person remains in his or her position, or it's just entirely too disruptive for that person to remain. And then you might want to consider placing that person on uh, administrative paid leave during the pendency of the investigation so the business can continue to operate. Um, but that's, that's, that's a very tricky decision that requires a lot of thought, fact analysis, and legal counsel. So let's talk a little bit about some of the steps that are taken during the investigative process. Um, the process itself will generate certain reports and analysis that can help the company defend um, discipline or termination decisions. It also helps put a stop to potentially bad behavior um, if it's found to be substantiated and will assist companies in terms of uh, mitigating their operational, financial, and reputational risk, while at the same time um, hopefully being a fundamentally fair process um, that ultimately, if, if necessary, will help if there's litigation in, in the future. So can you talk a little bit about some of the steps that are taken during the investigative process uh, to determine whether or not allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault or other misconduct are credible and founded? Frankly, every single internal investigation is different and is nuanced. It needs to be very carefully tailored to the circumstances and to the company. Uh, there are times when you have deadlines based on quarterly or annual filings. So having said that, there is a certain amount of sort of background document review that typically takes place, whether it's a review of people's HR files, complaints that have been filed in the past, um, looking at the company's policies and procedures and compliance programs around this so you have an understanding of the environment of the company um, in which you're conducting this investigation. Typically, an investigation involves witness interviews, presumably the alleged victim, the uh, complainant to the extent that that is a different person, uh, the alleged wrongdoer wrongdoers, and any <coughs> witnesses to that behavior. Simultaneously, in many cases, you're going to have a document hold and document review, frequently consisting of um, chat, uh, text messages, emails, uh, any other type of documentation that the company may be able to make available to the investigators to help understand uh, the underlying facts, to help corroborate witness statements, and the like. When you're conducting witness interviews, I think one of the overarching principles is to make sure uh, that you are providing um, up-down warnings at the outset to all interviewees to make it clear that you are acting as counsel to the company and not to that uh, for that individual as that individual's personal attorney, that the investigation and that, that interview is privileged and protected by attorney-client privilege, which privilege belongs to the company. And as a general matter, and this is, I think, Serena, you and I spoke about how this is 
fodder for a, a day long conference, you want to, so I can't delve too deeply into it, but you want to make sure that the, the, you are conducting the investigation in a way that protects work product protection privilege and attorney client privilege, treating documents as attorney client privilege, marking them uh, accordingly, um, making sure all of your interviews are documented in a way that is protective of the attorney client privilege. Um, and any uh, final reports, whether that's a fully written narrative report uh, or a more condensed PowerPoint presentation with just um, facts uh, represented in the slides and voiceovers presented during an oral presentation, you want to be very, very mindful uh, that you are conducting the investigation uh, under privilege protections, uh, unless, of course, there's been a decision at some point uh, that 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 the company is not going to try and maintain that privilege for whatever reason. Um, thank you. And we did talk about how, and, and I believe that you said this too, that, that establishing that privilege needs to be needs to take place from the very outset um, of okay. the beginning of the investigation. Um, can you talk a little bit, Yuna, about the need for disclosure? When, if ever, um, would an investigation? and the fact of an investigation itself, and also the findings, um, be something that would be disclosed to regulators, to shareholders, external auditors? Uh, when would that occur? I guess I'll go backwards first. I mean, frequently, uh, especially when dealing with a public company, um, I think in almost in all scenarios, there has been a certain degree of involvement by outside auditors, especially when you're lead, um, your uh, going into earnings season, and you need the companies preparing to file a K or a Q, uh, a 10K or a 10Q. Um, that's when outside auditors need to have some understanding of what's going on in order to be comfortable with signing off on the company's financial statements. Um, simultaneously, because public companies uh, need to disclose material information to its shareholders, um, that's one uh, arena in which a company may need to make some decisions when that time comes um, as to whether to, uh, whether and to what degree to make to make a disclosure. Um, again, that's an assessment of materiality, and it, it very much depends on the issues at stake, who's involved, uh, what level of management or um, the C-suite or otherwise um, is implicated, and that's going to involve sort of a lengthy factual. Uh, analysis and discussion with with counsel as to whether to make that disclosure, the type, the level of detail to go into in that type of disclosure, and the timing of that. As a general matter, with respect to regulators, though, there is no sort of affirmative duty to make those kinds of disclosures. Of course, if you're dealing with criminal conduct or it's a highly regulated um, industry that the company is involved in, that might that might be different depending on the outcome of the investigation. Can you talk a little bit about what a company should do at the conclusion of the investigation? The investigation itself should really be done with an eye towards gathering the facts. It is all the investigation itself and the fact gathering process is ultimately to provide legal advice to the client. The period of the actual investigation, conducting witness interviews, looking at documentation, that really is the portion where you need to understand the facts. And after that has been done, there needs to be an assessment of the legal implications of the facts that are determined to exist by the independent investigators. 
So you need to understand, uh, was there in fact um, a violation of the law? Was, was there in fact, uh, were there in fact any violations of company policy? And if so, what is the company, what are the actions the company is, is prepared to take? If the allegations turn out to be substantiated, there's going to need to be an understanding of the employment law implications of any action taken, uh, need to review the employment contracts of the individuals involved to understand what kinds of recourse the company has with regard to termination or otherwise. And all of that, any sort of critical decisions that take place after the conclusion of the investigation should be documented so that the company understands the basis upon which it's making these decisions. I think it's important also to circle back to the uh, alleged victim and uh, the alleged wrongdoer, depending on the, the outcome of the investigation, the message might be different. But I think it's fair to provide them with some sense of closure as to what the, um, in, in, in high-level terms, what the findings were and what the implications are for them and what, what steps the company is going to take um, in response. And frequently, uh, board members are informed of the outcome. Um, and, and again, I typically get involved when you have sort of crisis management situations or scenarios of sexual harassment or misconduct allegations that are quite serious in nature. And in my representations, it's frequently the highest levels of management and board members getting involved and having an understanding of the investigation. So reporting in to those stakeholders as well um, might be necessary. And I think one thing that doesn't happen enough, frankly, is what I call the postmortem or the after action, which is to sort of assess how the company got to that place in the first place. Frequently, uh, if you look back, you'll be able to find some inflection points very early on where if things had been handled a little bit differently, um, if policies had been followed a little bit more strictly, if issues had been escalated at an earlier point in time, um, things could have been headed off before needing to call in um, outside investigators or having a potential litigation or criminal or regulatory investigation on your hands. So I think it's just as critical after the fact to do an assessment of uh, what happened. Uh, does the company need to revise any of its procedures and policies? Does the company need to conduct additional training? Um, are the people in certain positions, for instance, there are articles about how oftentimes human resources personnel and executives have fallen down on the job in terms of handling these complaints. Um, does there need to be a change in management? And I think these are all important things to make sure that uh, there isn't a repeat of past incidents. So having had the opportunity to do a number of these investigations and look back on inflection points and, and do the postmortem, are there tools that you can identify that companies can employ that will unearth issues of sexual harassment that will help to, you know, facilitate a better culture and actually weed out and root out these issues if they exist within the company? Yeah, I don't think there's any silver bullet, but I do see different companies doing uh, different things that seem to work well. Um, I actually serve as um, permanent counsel to one financial institution manning the whistleblower hotline. And the directive from the client was, we want more complaints coming in. We want to make sure that this hotline is publicized um, to our employees and outside of the firm um, enough that we feel like it's actually working, that people know it's there and people are um, comfortable using it. Uh, so that's one thing that I think companies are really 
looking at as a good avenue for complaints coming in and, and making people feel safe in terms of um, escalating situations. I also see companies taking sort of another look at their training and their policies and procedures and making sure that they're actually being implemented correctly. I mean, frequently companies on paper are doing it correctly, but in practice is where there are shortcomings. So, for instance, I often see um, complaints that are coming into supervisors and or to HR that are not documented, that are not viewed as actual complaints and therefore not acted upon. I've had HR personnel tell me that um, uh, an individual came in uh, to just vent and therefore it wasn't handled as a complaint. Um, so you, you want to make sure that you have appropriate uh, training in terms of what appropriate workplace conduct is, but also how to handle instances of transgressions or uh, complaints by uh, individuals and how to handle them appropriately and early. And you really want to create a culture where um, you're not letting things sort of percolate and get to a point, again, of crisis. I have a company, uh, I, I saw a company client where um, there was a lot of, there were, there were a lot of sort of inappropriate jokes being told on the floor um, and comments made of sort of sexual nature, which was all tolerated uh, because uh, the company felt like everyone was okay with that and no one was going beyond just the joke telling. And again, that's a risk that companies are taking because that can easily escalate into a scenario of uh, a hostile work environment, sexual harassment, um, or sexual misconduct. And so um, you really want to make sure that you tamp down on the risk. And to the extent you are taking risks in terms of allowing that type of behavior, you're doing it uh, knowingly and understanding the risk that you're taking on. So, Yuna, are there particular types of training that you would recommend? Are there particular trainings that you have seen within companies that work better than others? I um, I, I have seen uh, different trainings and uh, different levels of efficacy, but I think probably the most generalized principle uh, for me is that training should be live. Um, trainings that are done where an individual is behind a computer monitor or looking at something pre-recorded, uh, they're frequently not paying attention. And it's very easy to have a training running in the background while doing your actual work. I think in order to really be effective and have the greatest chance of, of, of really uh, getting the message across to people is to have a more intimate setting, to have a, a live training where people actually have to come and attend and listen and participate. Um, that, I think, is the overarching principle for me and what I recommend. You know, if companies implement strong anti-harassment policies and have good anti-harassment training that actually works well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to get complaints of sexual harassment. In fact, what it may mean is that they will get complaints more often. Uh, in light of that, how do you counsel clients to assess whether their policies and their practices and their trainings are effective? Yeah, sure. Like I said, I think there are some companies out there that are wondering if they should be encouraging more complaints. That, um, And I 
And, and I don't discourage companies from finding, making sure that those channels of, of communication are open and widely disseminated. In terms of assessing whether um, a, a program is working, I mean, there are a lot of steps a company can take in order to assess the effectiveness of their anti-harassment and misconduct and discrimination policies. As a, as a jumping off point, you want to make sure, at least in written form, the policies and procedures conform with the law, conform with the culture of the company, and are written in a way where issues are being, uh, there, there are channels of communication available to employees, um, that uh, there are clear escalation policies for complaints and clear steps that people know they need to take in order to respond to these complaints. After that, it's, it's, you want to look at, is that actually being implemented in practice? Um, how frequently are the trainings conducted of employees and how frequently are people charged with responding to complaints, potentially, whether it's uh, HR personnel or people within management, how, how frequently are they being trained? Um, and how informed are all of these people about the different avenues for uh, complaints and for escalation? Uh, and that can be done through uh, surveys, formal or informal. Um, it can be done through understanding the number of complaints that are coming in uh, in any given time period. For one client, we do um, a quarterly review of complaints that have come in through the hotline and how those were handled. So the company is keeping very close tabs on um, the types of complaints, the number of complaints, and uh, assessing whether the escalation procedures worked and the remediation, whether the remediation procedures were appropriate and effective. Um, and then there are also ways of companies benchmarking against peer companies to get an understanding of are we, where are we vis-a-vis -vis other, other companies and what, what other companies are doing. So um, my final question is on this issue of what we, we see so much, these high-profile complaints of sexual harassment. So what can a company do to, first of all, to make sure, as you've discussed, to that they take these issues very, very seriously, but that they also convey um, to to shareholders when, it's a, when there's a high-profile complaint, when they com to convey to the public that they are taking um, these issues very seriously. So talk a little bit about crisis communication and protection of reputation for the company in cases of high-profile sexual harassment allegations. Sure. I mean, I would say in the majority of cases that I've handled, um, it hasn't risen to the level of needing to engage with an outside PR firm and, and engage with the media on that level. But there certainly are instances where we've had to. And again, uh, we are dealing with the um, press folks within a company, uh, informing them of the nature of the investigation, the allegations, and where appropriate certain findings. Uh, so that they can also uh, engage with um, their outside PR communication company um, and have a very united front as to how to engage with the media and what message to send. Um, that's always a very tricky and fine line to walk. You want to make sure and you want to convey that the company is taking uh, appropriate action that is conducting a thorough investigation, that is conducting a very... Um, in, uh, expeditious investigation, uh, but the public, frankly, doesn't ne always need to know or even often need to know the nitty-gritty details of a particular complaint. I think now we're seeing much more 
uh, with much greater frequency high-profile complaints where every sordid detail is in the media, but that's not a typical sexual misconduct investigation. Um, there's a lot that can be and should be kept under wraps and confidential um, in order to protect the, the company, the business, uh, the individuals involved, from the victim to the complainant to the alleged wrongdoer to witnesses. Um, but where there are, uh, where crisis communications um, are necessary, uh, you just want to make sure that you're coordinating with the appropriate people, that there aren't mixed messages being sent, and you are uh, making it clear to the public that the company is acting responsibly and uh, and and um, acting appropriately. So, Una, I want to thank you so much. Uh, Una Dean is a partner of the White Collar Defense Regulatory Enforcement Investigations at Freed Frank. Uh, the memo that she has recently written with her colleague Joshua Roth is received a sexual misconduct complaint. Ten steps companies should take. Um, thank you very much for your time today and for your insights. Thanks so much, Serena. It's always nice to join Rain on um, on these podcasts. You do great work. Thanks, Eunice.